The Department of Homeland Security's financial management has been on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list since DHS was born in 2003. And that's something the nominee to serve as DHS's chief financial officer wants to change once and for all. We get more now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, let's start with who this CFO nominee is, where does he come from, and how does he think he's going to get this done if he's confirmed? Yeah, his name is Jeff Rezmovic. He's, uh, of course, the nominee to serve as DHS's CFO, and he's well acquainted with the inner workings of DHS. He's spent the last 13 years at the department. He's currently the Associate Deputy Undersecretary for Management, and he was previously DHS's Deputy Chief of Staff, so he's kind of got that cross-departmental view as well. He testified before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee last week as as part of a nomination hearing. And of course, Resmovic, if confirmed, would oversee the finances of the sprawling DHS, which has an annual budget of more than $100 billion. He was asked about how IT and financial management have been on GAO's high-risk list, as you mentioned, since the department was created in 2003. Here's what he said. We've got to get off the GAO high-risk list. If confirmed as the department CFO, among my greatest priorities will be moving forward with financial systems modernization. Right now, we have approximately 40% of the department's spending occurring on modern integrated financial systems. And of course, we have to get to 100%. Yeah, so how is that project going, financial systems modernization? Because it's really a matter of all the components modernizing and somehow integrating it, I guess. That's right. Yeah. And they're very much still in the throes of it. Uh, GAO reported on this in the latest version of its high-risk list released earlier this year. It, it found DHS really has the leadership commitment as they measure it to get behind these financial systems modernization efforts, but they'll need more, uh, quote unquote, capacity, essentially resources to see through financial systems modernization. Uh, right now, the two big ones that are still hanging out there are the Federal Emergency Management Agency and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They are looking at upgrading their financial systems here in the next few years. The Coast Guard just finished rolling out its new financial system, but actually a, a 2022 audit found a material weakness with ineffective design controls. So there's some challenges there with one of the most recent financial uh, systems modernization. Resmovic says he will work closely with DHS Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen on these modernization efforts, which are so important to kind of getting DHS's financial house in order. Here's Resmovic again. I would want to make sure that we are incorporating the right modernization projects through our regular budget cycles. Would work closely with the CAO on that. And when it comes to issues that arise in between budget cycles, making sure that we have the tools and resources that you have helped to make available to us to include the Technology Modernization Fund and the Non-Recurring Expense Fund. Well, that's all well and good, but what else does he have to do? Because there are systems in place to count the beans now, and I don't think it's entirely an IT problem that they are not able to get a full financial accounting picture and therefore are on the high-risk list. Or is it simply the IT? I mean, what else does he say he wants to worry about? No, you're right. It's, it's kind of a combination of, of both. The modernization is really important, as Resmovic pointed out. But, uh, you know, DHS has received an, a clean audit opinion on its financial statements for the last 10 consecutive years. But it's also received a separate adverse opinion on its internal controls over financial reporting for the last decade, every year for the last decade. Uh, that's because, according to GAO, 
DHS did not design and fully implement control activities with reasonable assurance that these systems would produce reliable reporting of uh, financial information. And, and then there's also internal control weaknesses in the area of IT controls and information systems. Uh, so that's that brings that whole IT aspect back in. And then e- even in, within the last year, a new issue has popped up with insurance liabilities where the auditor reported that area as a material weakness for DHS in fiscal 2021. So those are some of the issues uh, that Resmovic will have to, to oversee as CFO if he's confirmed. Resmovic is not the only nominee there before the Senate. You also heard last week a hearing for Harry Coker, and he's nominated to be the next national cyber director. And what happened there? What's his outlook for the job? Yeah, he would uh, take over for acting national cyber director Kemba Walden, The first uh, Senate-confirmed NCD, Chris Inglis, stepped down earlier this year. Coker is a retired naval officer. He served in high-level positions at the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency. And if he's confirmed, he'd be responsible for continuing to implement the Biden administration's national cyber strategy that was released earlier this year over the summer. The Biden administration released a whole implementation plan with dozens of actions that agencies are taking. If he's confirmed, Coker would be kind of sitting over all of that, making sure that agencies are actually implementing it. During the hearing, he was asked a lot about building up the cyber workforce. Uh, And he talked about not just working with federal agencies, but with state and local governments on the issue. And he also discussed an idea that's been percolating across government about how many cyber jobs probably don't require, shouldn't require a college degree. Here's what he said. Uh, We need to change the way we look at vacancy notices, job questionnaires. In cyber, it should not be a requirement for everyone to have a four-year degree. You can get that cyber education without going through a a four-year college. And so, again, we need to uh, deliver that message uh, broadly and deeply. Yeah, you just have to give the candidates the third degree, but they don't have to have a four-year degree. And I'm sure this must have come up at the hearing because it's coming up in so many other different venues on Capitol Hill, so many other issues. Artificial intelligence and the impact of that on cyber, that's probably the biggest thing besides quantum. Yeah, he he was indeed asked about that, as you said uh you know, this has become such a hot button issue, especially since President Biden issued his executive order last week. You know, the national cyber director under that EO would have a seat on the White House's Artificial Intelligence Council, uh, as with a lot of other folks. But it's a pretty big council. But he, that national cyber director would be there. And of course, they would be looking at, you know, the cybersecurity risks when it comes to AI. And there are many. But Coker, during the hearing when he was asked about it, chose to focus more on the potential benefits of AI to the security field. Apologize for the vote, Senate vote alarms that you'll hear during this clip. There is an awful lot of data that is uh, not just available, but that is essential uh, to cybersecurity. Uh, so much so that big data analytics need artificial intelligence capability to process through those mounds of data and turn it into actionable intelligence in a timely manner. That's a direct area in which artificial intelligence can and must support cybersecurity. And that hearing was fairly favorable? That's right. Yeah, both Harry Coker and and, uh, Jeff Resmovic, who we heard from earlier, didn't really face any outspoken opposition. So we'll see how those, those nominations actually go. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.